that's it. That's the end. There we go. 2023 is in the books. We have some great guests throughout the year, and today is a special day. We're going to do a best of with some of the greatest guests we've had all throughout 2023. And wishing you the best of all things for a happy new year. All this and much more on episode number 849 of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. Welcome and thanks for joining me today on the Discipline Investor Podcast. What a year it's been, hasn't it? I mean, from all-time highs in certain areas of the markets to stocks extending crazy winning streaks, the Magnificent Seven, as they call it, chalking up, I don't know, hundreds of percents of gains throughout the year. Bitcoin, Ethereum, gold at all-time highs, oil falling, and the economy resilient. It's been a year that's confounded a lot of people, and I got to tell you, when we started here a year ago, I wasn't thinking that we'd have such a great market condition as we've had. One of the things you need to do throughout your investing process is make sure that you can, well, I hate this word, but pivot. You can change where you are. You can make adjustments if the outcome is not looking like what you thought it was going to be. And I got to tell you, it really was looking like we should have had a recession sometime in the second half of 2023, but uh-uh-uh, that didn't happen at all. As a matter of fact, it was relatively, I would say, a great year for the economy, considering the fact, especially considering, that we saw that the Fed was so active and keeping rates higher for longer, and if nothing else, rates stayed very significantly higher for the entirety of 2023. No rate cuts yet. Although, on the horizon, there is a tremendous amount of optimism that is looking for that to happen. Well, 2023, one of the greatest things that we had and what we could do and count on each and every week is having some great guests. And what we did was we asked our good friend Ryan Radisky to come up with a best of some of the guests that we have. And you know many of them, but we have a slew of them that we're going to put out throughout the year. The first one is to start off and kick off 2024, which is just happening tomorrow. Monday is going to be New Year's Day. Markets are closed. So we thought we'd give you the opportunity to reflect back on some of our great guests. And let's just get right to it. Our first guest coming up is, um, is I think, Alex, is um, he, he provides so much great insight. And, um, well, I'm going to let you listen. I'm not going to take away his thunder. Let's get right to it. And then we're going to just buzz right through a few others to keep you occupied through this New Year's. And our guest today is Alex Shahidi, and he is a CIO, co-CIO, and managing partner at Evoke Advisors. And this is a big firm. They have, like, you know, billions, like $22 billion in assets and a lot of people working there. Um, he also uh, graduate, graduated from uh, University of California, which I'm not going to hold against him, uh, Santa Barbara. Alex, welcome. Appreciate you Thank you for here. having me. Yeah, Great so to be here. You, you have lots. Of, by the way, th this list goes on. This whole, this whole, you got books under your belt. We'll put some links on the website under episode 799, by the way, over on the disciplineinvestor.com. Uh, how to get his books. You got several books that you wrote. You're just moving, young guy moving and grooving. So 
What do you think? Uh, let's just start with uh, just this. This, I guess you know, you've you've been around. You you got a lot of depth of knowledge. You have a lot of uh, of of understanding from doing it. You have a lot of understanding from, let's call it the books, if you will, right? Because you got all the cred. What's with this market? I mean, in terms of, I don't mean the market itself, right? I mean, the, the is this, are we still in the let's get rich quick uh, kind of thing? Or is that gone and back to fundamentals? Or what, what are you seeing here? Uh, it's interesting. The, the get rich quick, that whole notion seems to cycle through just like many things in the markets. Uh, when, when you have an upswing, then the focus is get rich quick. And when things start going sideways or down, then it's more about how do I protect myself? And I feel like this is just another one of those. We saw the same thing in the late 90s and then that reversed. 2007, it reversed again. Uh, 2020 reversed for a very short period of time and then uh, back to the races with all the stimulus. And it seems like that's just happening again. So that's just market psychology, you know, fear and greed playing out. Yeah, so it's interesting. I, I talked about at the um, at the first part of the show, which which you haven't heard, uh, you know, the idea of, of where are we from a fundamental standpoint, and how do you value this market? And you talked about a variety of confidence factors and things of that nature. And looking at expectations, it it seems a little bit interesting to me that there's so much excitement that is focused on the Fed right now, and um, fundamentals be damned. Well, I mean, the Fed took center stage last year. Right. Because you came into the year, you know, highest inflation in 40 years. The Fed had been very stimulative before that post COVID and probably too much for too long. Highest inflation in 40 years. And you had this massive tightening environment that you haven't, you, you've actually never seen interest rates move that fast in that short of a time period. You know, they're raising 75 basis points every meeting. Um, and if you go back for decades, uh, it was more of a measured approach. We're going to raise rates a quarter point here, a quarter point there. This was just in hyperdrive. And that was just in response to the highest inflation in 40 years. So that is what drove markets last year. It wasn't really how the economy was doing. Uh, inflation was kind of gradually coming down. It's expected to go back to normal and, uh, as is growth. Uh, but it was the Fed that was driving everything. And, and that, it kind of makes sense. You know, when cash goes from zero to, it's heading to about 5% or so, every asset competes with cash. And, you know, the stock market over a hundred years has earned something like six or 7% above cash. When cash is zero, you should expect six or seven out of stocks. When cash jumps to five, it should be like 11 or 12 to compensate you for taking that risk. And when it moves very quickly, you know, from zero to five, everything has to reprice lower to compete with cash. So that was, the, that was all that really mattered last year. And now this year, it may be very different and, and we'll get to that in a second, but that's, that's basically what happened last year. What we have now is... The idea that, okay, there's inflation. Is it as bad as, is, is it worse than, is it, okay, whatever it is, is it going to end? I mean, if you go back to the 70s, that's probably the closest analog to what we're potentially heading into. You know, inflation had, had never been high. It, it started going up in the early 70s and the view was, okay, this is transitory. It's going to come back down on its own. And the Fed wasn't overly aggressive. And, and so it started to rise and then they tightened, it fell, they eased, it rose more and you went back and forth, back and forth for a decade and inflation averaged 7% for 10 years. And in that environment, in, in, in that 1970s environment, stocks underperformed cash. You had been better off literally having your money in, in a money market fund for 10 years in, in the stock market and, and cash outperformed bonds as well. 
both stocks and bonds underperform cash for mm. a decade. Mm. And, and so you could, this could persist for a while because you get this back and forth in, in, in the Fed's response to higher inflation. Mm-hmm. High inflation is just a very difficult thing for a Fed um, to manage or central bank to manage because to fight inflation, you raise rates, but then that slows growth. And if growth gets too weak, then you lower rates. And then that fuels inflation and you go back and forth. So that, to me, that's the big question is, is inflation going to naturally decline over a reasonable time frame on its own? Or does it take higher rates? And if it takes higher rates, what will that, what will that do to growth? And then what will be the response to the weak growth environment? And are we going to repeat the 70s or not? From Vegas at the Consumer Electronics Show, and is our good friend, Frank Curzio. Frank, you're rested, you're, you're back, you, you recovered? Finally recovered, yes. I mean, uh, it's a lot of work. And, and by the way, thank you so much for having me on the show. The, the things I want to kind of talk about is... I think some of the market items for a moment, because I know the CES stuff will be exciting and people are going to wait to hear it, but the market stuff, people are like, ah, but there's some pretty interesting things happening right now. What are you thinking about earnings season going forward? Uh, They're coming down tremendously earnings. And I think it's funny how in September, uh, and this happened last quarter and we said, so right now, if you're looking, we're in the first week of earnings season, it's going to say 70% plus of companies have beat their estimates. These estimates have been revised over 7% lower since September. Right. 7% lower. Okay. Average. If you go back to the, to the 50s, usually you're growing earnings at 8% a clip on average around that number, right? That's how much they've been lowered going into this quarter. They've been significantly lowered last time to the point that you, you know, instead of 70 companies, you're probably more like 10 to 15% of the companies beating estimates. But what you see is an estimate they put on TV, which is the average estimate of all the JP Morgans and a sell side analyst. And they have that average, the mean estimate or whatever. Uh, and that's the estimate it beats. And people say, wow, they blew out the estimate, you know, but you have to look at the numbers. I mean, we just saw this with Netflix, like Netflix numbers were terrible, like in the earnings. Well, they missed, but if you they look, missed terribly. They missed terribly, but their subscriber ad was 7.6 million compared to 4.5 million. Right. And, and you're looking like, wow, it blew them out. They're growing again. They're not growing. If the 7.6 number is fantastic and that's just leading the stock higher uh, right after earnings. But those net ads, the global streaming paid net ads are down 7% year over year. You wouldn't think that, right? You would think, wow, they're up, they're growing again. So the numbers get revised so much. So at the end of the day, the numbers are the numbers. If you're supposed to earn $5 and it gets revised to $3 and you do 310, it's still 310, which is a dramatic decline from where it was, which means what? It means that your stock is getting much more expensive because if your stock is holding up, but your earnings are coming down, that means your PE ratio is going to go higher and higher. So when we're seeing stocks at very expensive levels here that, I, that I'm worried about because that earnings adjustment for 225 it's going to come down to 180. Uh, 180. I, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. Hold, hold it. You don't get away with something like that. By the way, speak up a little bit too. You don't get yep. away with this because I know you're hiding behind this. You don't, want to, you don't want people to know you just said 180. You know, 180. 180. 180 is a yeah. far cry from 200, by the way. So, you know, okay. just back I've talked, on my last podcast, we talked about this, the back of the envelope math when it comes to looking at pricing. And it's very simple. And then we're talking about totality of stocks. We're not talking about each individual stock here. But 180, if you have a 20-time multiple on 180, if you did, that's only 3,600. And that's a lot of multiple for a low earnings. Yes. So where do I get that Yeah, Where do you get that calculation? Okay, which sounds crazy, right? Crazy, like, right. Well, yeah, I'm just, repeating it back. I'm one of the people that actually, you know, do the research and put the numbers behind it. <laughs> so it's not like, oh, the market's going to go up 300%. So 
If so wait, you're not at, talking from your ass like most of the people on CNBC. Exactly. This ah, is how I'm figuring it out. And gotcha. tell me if I'm wrong, yep. if I'm okay. Okay, because COVID was the greatest thing that happened to Wall Street and earnings. Yeah. Okay, and here's yeah. why. If it didn't happen, we would be down a lot further now. But here's what happened. So if you look at 2018, we had earnings of $160 total S&P 500 earnings. Remember, we just said it's 225. Those are the estimates. They were at 240 not long ago. That's three months ago. They're like at 225 now. They're going to keep going lower and lower and be revised lower. Uh, the following year, the market didn't really do that good in 2018. 2019, the market exploded higher, right? Whatever mm -hmm. it was, 30% or whatever it was. Uh, and yet earnings fell. So we peaked in 2018 at one at 160 because 2019, we were at $159 in earnings. A slight decline, right? So we And then when I say 2019, I mean December, right? So we're looking at January 2020, right before COVID, right? Mm -hmm. So we peaked at earnings. The reason why the market went up is because, you know, Trump stood on his chair and said, we need to lower rates and lower rates. And well, lower and rates. we also had the tax cuts, the corporate tax cuts helped. And, and even tax big. cuts helped even in, in 2017, I think. Yeah. It, it, but yeah, you're right. Those tax cuts and everybody, you know, just, you know, you saw, but it, you saw it, it didn't reflect in earnings. It reflected in earnings before that. It reflected in earnings from 2017 to 18. Okay. So now we have peak earnings going into COVID and then they shut down everything, right? So our peak earnings without COVID, without stimulus, without anything was 160. It was 159, 160, right? That's where we peaked. With everything going great, that's where we peaked. And this is when interest rates were where? They were well below 2%. And for the previous years, they were around 0%. Now, if we look where rates are, we just raised rates by the fastest amount in the Fed era, uh, tremendously, right? Mm -hmm. Our terminal rate's going to go at least 5%. Some Fed guys, terminal rate guys means that's the highest, that's where it's going to peak. But now we have Fed governors saying it's going to be 5.5%, right? We don't have the Fed buying bonds anymore. They're not injecting money into the system, right? But yet, we're expecting earnings to be 225. Why? Because we injected $11.5 trillion into this system in 18 months, and our guest today is John Williams. And listen, this guy knows his stuff. He's the founder and publisher of ShadowStats.com. He receives an AB in economics, cum laude, from Dartmouth, MBA from Dartmouth's Amos Tuck School of Business, and he was named as the Edward Tuck uh, Scholar. And um, during his career in consulting in the area of economics in the last 33 years, by the way, this is not just a guy that just started yesterday. He was worked with individuals as well as Fortune 500 companies. We've been on before, so welcome back because he has a wealth of information and knowledge about things. And, and John, how are you? I want to talk about, uh, you know, what's going on in the world of, of eco. And, uh, you know, we're going to get into how you do your things. But where are we today? Like, just let's talk about today for a second, how you see things. Sure. Well, th thank you for having me, Andrew. Um, uh, very simply, uh, I think we're on the brink of a. Uh, well, we're still we're still in a, a, a down economy. We've not fully recovered from the, uh, the the pandemic, despite all the all the hype. And it looks like we're heading lower again. If you look at most of the numbers, had very strong GDP numbers last uh, last quarter or so. But um, all the underlying fundamentals are showing the economy is tanking. I think we're, we're in for a very deep downturn at the same time, where we have higher inflation than we've had in uh, uh, decades. Yeah. Uh, and it's come down a little bit. All that is, at the moment is, is sort of gimmicked in terms of the reduction. We have much higher inflation ahead of us. So I'm looking at something along the lines of, a, uh, of an inflationary depression oh. in, the, uh, in the year or so ahead. Well, hold on, hold on. Let, let, let's quantify that because that you don't usually get that word very often. You know, the word recession is usually when you say that that's when your neighbor loses their job and the depression is when you lose your job, right? When I lose my job. When you say an inflationary depression, 
I mean, we entered into a pretty, I would say, uh, once-in-a-lifetime situation back in March, April 2020, where we really were in a depression for a moment there, just for a moment, until all of a sudden, uh, well, we were in a, a true economic depression, except for the fact that there was all of a sudden this incredible amount of money poured on us by the government, right? Are you talking about depression, depression, or are you using that word a little bit more liberally? Well, depression, um, depression is just a very deep recession. You get, you get into the definitions, the, the recession commonly is defined as a back-to-back quarterly contractions in the broad economy, the gross domestic product. Um, the depression is, is not formally defined other, in, in today's jargon, other than it's a very deep recession. And uh, I think we're headed for, uh, actually already are in a deep recession. Um, the, what, what, what the government has done here over the decades, and uh, a lot of the games started back in the early 1980s with the uh, CPI, is that they understate inflation. And if you understate inflation, that has all sorts of impact with the numbers uh, against what gets reported and uh, also against what people are, are actually experiencing. Um, back in uh, 1980, the then headline Consumer Price Index, the common measure that people look at today, um, had, uh, had jumped something like 8% uh, on a year-over-year basis, with very high inflation for those days. And um, the government looked at it and said, gee, or the Congress did, and say, you know, that means we're going to have to, we're going to have a boost in the cost of living adjustment for Social Security next year. Um, that's going to hurt us in terms of being able to balance the uh, budget deficit. Let's find a way to restate the inflation. And that's exactly what they did, very openly. They, they, they tell you what they do, and it, uh, they tell you the effect it's going to have. But what, what, they, have, what they did then they changed the way they measured the cost of uh, um, owning a home. It used to be fairly straightforward, all sorts of things surveyed. They decided to change that to uh, a measurement of what they call the homeowner's equivalent equivalent rent, which is um, what the government determined a um, the average person would pay himself to rent his house from himself, and then the inflation that was uh, determined is what that person would. Uh, would do in terms of uh, monthly increases on that uh, rent to himself. Absolute nonsense. It knocked something like two and a half percentage points off the aggregate uh, CPI, and there were a number of changes that start, that started back around 1982. And our guest today is Eric Townsend. He is a hedge fund manager. He is also the host of a fabulous podcast called Macro Voices. This guy has a lot of depth. We're going to learn a lot. We're going to cover a lot of areas because uh, when we've had him on last time, which was years ago, I remember we we covered all sorts of really fascinating areas. So I want to thank you in advance for coming on and for entertaining us, Eric, and for and for and for educating us at the same time. So, uh, how have things been? Fantastic. Thanks for having me back, Andrew. And I should mention, too, uh, we finally updated the Macro Voices announcer script. It's been calling me hedge fund manager for, for years and years, but I actually closed that fund in 2018. But 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 it doesn't, you know, if you were a doctor, we could, you know, you retired, we could still say you were a doctor in your past. It gives people the, 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 the understanding that you 
were not only a theorist, but you also, you know, boots on the ground and, and, and hands uh, in the dough. That, that works for me, but believe it or not, I actually have gone through several rounds of uh, brokers finding out from a podcast. They hear that I'm fund manager and they switch my market data subscriptions back to uh, to professional and charge me more. It's that, crazy. I, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that. I totally get that. I totally understand that. And you know what's funny about that? And most people that are listening probably don't care about this. The one thing that I've always been bothered with for years is that if you have multiple platforms that you're getting, let's say, real-time quotes on, and for whatever reason, it's an overlap and you use maybe, you know, one for this, one for that, they charge you every single platform the same professional fees. I'm thinking, wait, if I want New York Stock Exchange live data, who cares what platform it's on? Well, yeah, if you pay for it three or four times. And the, the thing is, there's so little integration in the software in this business that you end up having to pay for it several times because nobody provides one integrated software suite that does everything you need it to do. Yep. So everybody has to pay for three or four market data subscriptions. It's yep. nuts. Crazy. So uh, let's go back and talk to me about, um, you know, your, your, your background. You did, of course, you were, you were in, in, in different areas that you moved into the area of investing. And then, um, you know, obviously back in, was it 17? I think it was, you started your podcast, but I don't you tell me about that. Well, I was a software entrepreneur in the beginning, uh, sold my company in 98. I was 33 years old at the time, made enough money that I could retire, was foolish enough to try to do that at that age. And as you know, that, that never works. So I lived in a boat in South Florida for a while and tried to be, you know, Mr. Retired Guy. That didn't work. And I ended up uh, not really being sure what I was going to do next. And then um, our friends at Goldman Sachs lost <laughs> most of my money. Actually, uh, I shouldn't say most of that because I, I don't want them to sue me. But uh, I had a relationship that turned out to be unsatisfactory with uh, the private banking gotcha. community. Mm -hmm. And um, basically out of necessity needed to reinvent myself as a private investor. And I didn't think that was going to be satisfying because I imagined what traders do as being like the Graham and Dodd style of sit in, you know, review balance sheets and, oh, and yeah. look at green, ratios green, and, green, uh, green visor and sharp pencil. Yeah. You know, and, and I knew that I was not that guy and I was thinking, well, I guess I have to learn to be that guy because I need to make some money because the, the private bankers didn't, didn't serve me very well. And uh, I had lost a significant portion of my wealth by being a, a, by allowing somebody else to run my money for me and uh, choosing, you know, little shops like yours are a different story, but the big banks, as far as I can tell are, are mostly corrupt. So uh, I was thinking that I was not going to like this. And I started reading Jim Rogers uh, stuff oh, and yeah. particularly the market wizards books. I'm like, wait a minute, you can spend your days learning about interesting aspects of what's going on in the world and geopolitics and, and relationships between countries, and then expand that a little bit to understand how it relates to currencies and commodity prices and, and actually make money from being interested in how the world works. That's possible. So it was a huge eye opener for me. And I really just fell in love with macroeconomics out of, out of initially necessity, not thinking I was going to like any kind of being a, a full-time trader. And when I learned about macro, I'm like, okay, I found my thing. And our guest today is Brian Shannon. And he's, listen, Brian has been on the show before. He's been a friend of mine for years. I think we, we all started this journey about the same time together with the social media, with the 
the, the Brian does videos on technical analysis. He's a full-time trader. He's an educator. He's the author of the highly regarded book called Technical Analysis Using Multiple Timeframes. And more importantly, the new book that is out, which we're going to talk about today. Yeah, that's a hardcover. Maximum Trading Gains with Anchored VWAP, the perfect combination of price, time, and trends. So thank you for coming on and, and, and spending some time with me today. It's great being back, Andrew. It's been a while. And, uh, you know, as you said, I think the first time that uh, I did your podcast, it was pretty much brand new, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe 12 years ago or so. Yep. Does that sound yep. right? Yeah, we started in 07. So probably, you know, as we got warmed up into what we were doing, what the hell this thing was all about. But yeah, one of the first first people, I think you were just starting out back then, weren't you? I mean, give, give or take. Well, I, you know, I started in the business in 1991, uh -huh. um, but social media, when that kind of, yeah. you know, whatever that was, I think that was about 15 years ago right. and, you know, doing the YouTube videos, you know, since day one of YouTube is actually Google. I, I was uploading to the Google. Um, they used to have their own video service and then they acquired uh, YouTube. So that's when, uh, you know, my videos from there got transferred over and that sort of thing. So, mm. yeah, it's been a fun journey and uh, made some great friendships along the way, most importantly important, including yourself. Yeah, it's been great. So let's talk a little bit about this and let's talk about it in terms of uh, an audio cast, if you will, because sometimes when we talk about technical analysis and charting, and by the way, for all of those that are listening and you hear the word technical analysis, calm down. It's not a big deal. Well, this is, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a fancy word for understanding trends and resistance support and, and price uh, movement on a chart, which gives you a historical backdrop of what's going on. So instead of knowing that the stock, where's the stock trading? 52. Okay. What does that mean? Well, you could see what's happening and then putting some, we'll call it indicators and some smarts into the process. So, but let's back up a little bit. You know, you said you were started in the business, uh, in 91. Um, and, uh, I want to talk a little bit about what it was that excited you and what got you involved with, and at the same time, please explain what is technical analysis and charting. Okay. What got me interested was, um, you know, I, I remember there was a company that uh, I, I, I just had an interest in the stock market, basically from uh, watching Wall Street Week with my dad when I was, uh, you know, a teen. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then um, I think it was maybe a junior in high school. I used to go to the library and read these investment letters. And there was one that's still around today called the Cabot Market Letter. Oh, sure. And they were talking about this company called Advanced Polymer Systems. And they said, you know, we like it if it gets above $5 per share. And I'm thinking, that seems crazy. Why would you want to pay more for it? And they had a chart there, and it just made sense looking at the chart saying, mm. well, yeah, if it gets above there, well, it looks free to run. It's been stuck underneath that level. And then I read Stan Weinstein's book about, uh, you know, technical analysis, which is a, a classic. great classic. Yeah, classic. Um, and really explained it in, in plain English terms. And, and I was hooked. So I started reading everything I could about technical analysis. So my, you know, my opinion of what technical analysis is, it's, it's using price data to and, and historical tendencies of uh, the cyclical flow of money through markets to find out where we are in that cycle, anticipate the next move of where the market might go. It's not really about, uh, you know, prediction, uh, but anticipate, and most important, then look at the chart and say, if I'm wrong, 
based on, you know, the definition of trend, where do I get out? And the definition of an uptrend is higher highs and higher lows. So if I buy it as the momentum starts to emerge in a stock, then I want to hold it as long as it's making higher highs and higher lows for my time frame. If it breaks that pattern of higher lows, then I'll get out and move to the sidelines and, you know, look for something else. But it, it allows us to, you know, formulate our plan and, and you can use it as a standalone basis or uh, to complement any fundamental analysis. And, and really, you know, the techno fundamental uh, approach uh, is, is what a lot of people call it, is really, you know, marrying the fundamentals and what does this company do? What's their position in terms of their cash flow and where they are in relation to their sales and competition uh, and all that traditional additional analysis that you learn in schools um, and combining it with some timing. And that's, that's it. It's about timing and coming up with a plan. And our guest today is Steve Sanders. He's the executive vice president in marketing of marketing and product development at interactive brokers. And, and Steve has been with interactive brokers for 11 years. Um, I want to talk, I have a lot of things to talk about. I want to, I want to make this show about uh, education. Are you seeing anything Let's call the year to start it, but in 2023? Yeah. So, you know, this has always been the case when when there's uncertainty in the world or in certain uh, countries, there there seems to be a migration to safety. Um, In the UK, where, you know, certainly, um, you know, the markets haven't been as good as they could be, you know, certainly in the Ukraine, certainly in Hong Kong. And when you see this uncertainty in the world, you know, we see a lot of new clients coming on and we also see them investing uh, in the U.S. markets because they want to diversify their portfolios and and put their money in another place. Uh, Also, along with that, um, you know, being a higher rate environment, there is a lot more interest than there was in, in the trading of bonds. Um, people are just realizing, you know, at least in, at this time in this market, that it's a good place to uh, put their money and also diversify their portfolios. It's interesting. You said something. It's, it's You said when there is a heightened level of concern or, let's say, uh, uncertainty in the world, that all of a sudden people open accounts. And that's a fascinating thing because there's two reasons, as I see it. Tell me what you think. One is they want to, you said they want to come to the United States where it's a little safer. Well, they also want to get the hell out of Dodge, right? They want to get out of where, wherever it is that's giving them the, the concern. But the second thing is that a lot of people are very complacent when things are just going along swimmingly. You know, not a lot of ups, not a lot of downs, not a lot of volatility. And people don't make a lot of change. They don't like change because change is sometimes, you know, it's, 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 it's nerve wracking, right? What do they say? The the, 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 well, they say that uh, death, divorce, and moving your home have the, like this, the, the, the same extreme stress levels as each other. Probably. Well, I haven't died and I'm, I'm still married. <laughs> ah. So having, having moved uh, two years ago, I will tell you at least that one, it was pretty stressful. Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> but, but now, so here's the thing you know, I think that there's also, the potential for changing your investments to an unknown. You know what you got, the devil that you know, yeah. right? The devil yeah. that you know, I got this, I'm in this country, I'm in this investment, I'm in this portfolio, I'm this broker. Now I got to change. So something's happening. You also talked about in a higher yield environment 
Whereas my last show, the title was Tina is Dead. There is no alternative was the the byline for years where you had right. no choice, right? So yeah. now I know that you have and you know, a, a, obviously people can utilize a cash position as a position, right? Yep. And you're probably seeing a lot more of that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, just to go back to your other point, certainly when when markets are are tanking, you know, it's a time when people reevaluate and and change uh, what they're doing. So that that certainly is correct. But also, you know, our, you know, cash positions, um, we've always offered um, one of the highest rates in the industry on our on our broker account. You don't need to sweep it anywhere. Uh, you don't need to transfer it anywhere. You know, right now on USD, we're offering 4.08%. And, you know, we're, we're pegged to the Fed funds. So if the Fed funds goes up again, that rate will go up again. And we also peg it, you know, the benchmarks in the, in the um, other currencies, the, the 24 other currencies that we offer around the world. So again, our, 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 our focus is education. Oftentimes when you go and you sell a stock, let's say you have $100,000 of XYZ stock and you sell it and you say, okay, I'm just going to leave it in the cash account. And you go to a, you know some brokers out there, they'll leave it in a sweep account that is earning ungats, if you know what that is, my, my Italian friends. Uh, you're earning nothing. Whereas what you'll have to do is actually invest it in a specific vehicle like a uh, traded money market to get the higher rate. And what Steve is saying is that in their circumstance, they don't make you go through those machinations and, and hoops and, and, and leap over all sorts of different ways of doing things because some of these firms, I think, Steve, and you may or may not want to respond to this, are doing that purposefully so you don't get the interest rate if you don't know. Well, Andrew, you're, you're spot on having worked for a bank and you know now in the brokerage industry. Uh, the biggest secret, or maybe not so much a secret, in the financial services industry is that these that these financial services companies make money off of clients' laziness. Well, let's give a welcome to uh, our guest today, Anthony Scaramucci. You know all about him because we just did all of his bio and all that. And I got to tell you something, Anthony. Do you know the last time that you were on the Discipline Investor Podcast, eleven years ago, almost exactly, March two thousand and twelve. Been a while. Well, that was a good run for me. <laughs> so, I, I, uh, I am, uh, I'm pretty happy about that. Then you know, I mean, I, I, what I would say to you is, God bless, right? Yeah, that's all. That, exactly. that, you know, that, that that means that I'm back on. Yeah, and things are going to go well for me as a result of uh, being on this podcast. I, I think so. I think so. You know, listen, you're a Port Washington boy. We know that. Grew up in Long Island. Still living in. Uh, in, in, I guess, North Shore, right? North Shore, Long Island? Yeah, Manhasset. I'm, I live two miles from where I grew up. My parents are still in the house that I grew up in. Wow. Um, sort of, uh, but, you know, the, the the truth be told, it's a hard place for older people to live because my mom and dad bought that house in 1962 for $16,000. Uh, the taxes on that house are over $16,000 now. And so my dad's last uh, salary before he retired was about 32,000. So it just gives you a sense without a, uh, a subsidy from their kids, you know, they don't live there, you know, and that's yeah. a shame, yeah. but that's what's happened all over the North shore of long Island. Yeah. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, you got good fish in there. You got stripers and bluefish, I know. Fluke, a flounder. You got some sea bass, porgies. That's my day you when do. I used to fish that area. You do. You've got all that. You, you, you have that. You have fluke, as you say. I mean, I mean, listen, I I love the North Shore. Uh, I learned how to water ski in Manhasset Bay. Mm -hmm. My dad had a 22-foot Chrysler. Oh, gosh. Okay, that's when Chrysler Motors was in the boat business. Can you wow. imagine this? Yeah. It was a... 1976 Chrysler, <laughs> and we had a 115 horsepower Johnson outboard motor. And as you know, it's a two-stroke, right? So you had right, to mix the right. oil with the with the fuel. And this is really when we were not that environmentally conscious. So uh -huh. we had gas stations right in the harbor. You know, I can't tell you the number of uh, gasoline that spilled into that harbor right. when I was a kid. Yep. Yep. Good times. All right, let's talk about some other things. I want to get some other background. Uh, I, and I'm just going to hit you with this. Tell me about this reality show that you are on Special Forces. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, one of the cool things uh, about getting my ass fired like I did was it made me famous. And so I get these different offers uh, to go on shows. I've accepted two of them. Uh, one was uh, Celebrity Big Brother. That was a huge amount of fun. Really had a great time uh, doing that. And then the second one, um, was uh, uh, the special forces. And so basically what happened was my agent came to me and said, listen, there's going to be 16 people stuck in a tent in the Jordanian desert. Uh, there will be four special forces training people that are going to take you through the survival training that they do with the special forces teams. Uh, there'll be no plumbing. Um, the, uh, the shower will be heated by the sun from the desert and there'll be out, no outdoor plumbing or indoor plumbing. You know, you have to uh, use an outhouse to go to the bathroom. And uh, the the water was in these large jugs, which was like 95 to 100 degrees. Do you want to do this? And I stupidly said yes. I oh. said yes, 100%. Um, but I was in the tent with Mike Piazza, Danny Amendola, the two-time Super Bowl winning uh, wide receiver from the Patriots, Dwight Howard, who won the NBA championship. With the Lakers, uh, there were several Olympians in there, and Dr. Drew was with us, but he left after the first day. So I was out there for six days as the oldest person in the group. Mm. I'm 59 now, but I was 58, and they were literally beating the living daylights out of me. Finally, at the end of the sixth day, I dropped out. I uh, I didn't have the stomach for it anymore. I was just too tired. But they set me on fire. They locked me in a car, tried to drown me. Had a back dive off a helicopter. Uh, I climbed a 600-foot tower with a 35-pound backpack on. And then when I got to the top, was completely out of breath because it was like 105 degrees in the stairwell. They handed me a rope, and they clipped me to a safety harness and said, okay, jump off the building and repel yourself down the building. Of course, I'd never done that before, and I'm afraid of heights, Andrew. So needless to say, I was scared shit for the entire time that I did it. Uh, and I'm glad I did it, though, because I learned a lot about myself. Um, and I, I made apply, some, but was really there some good friends. pay involved in this or something? Oh yeah. No, no, they paid you very well. Oh, okay. No, 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 yeah, no, no. Right. There's some was, redeeming value was, to this. No, no, there was, <laughs> there was definitely pay involved. I try to give the, I try to give that stuff and the things I do on cameo to charity and things like that. But yes, I got paid. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it makes for an interesting life. And our guest today is Danielle DiMartino Booth. She's the founder and CEO of Quill Intelligence. And she is, uh, a very hardworking individual looking to redefine how markets intelligence is 
conceived and delivered, and she's built this 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 incredible organization, bringing together a core team of investing veterans to analyze the trends and provide critical analysis. Very sought after, I must tell you, very sought after in the media. Uh, I had to wait some time to get her to agree and figure out a time we could do this. She's a global thought leader on monetary policy, economics, finance, and the author of the wonderful and must-read book, Fed Up, an investor's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. And you obviously, anybody listening to me, know that I subscribe to that thesis. <laughs> so, yes, indeed. Good for you. How are you doing? How are you feeling? How's things? Uh, things are good. I mean, you know, I'm, I am a high energy person, so I like it when things are busy. I mean, you know, global banking crises, you know, that, that might be a little bit too busy, but, uh, but no, things are going well. <laughs> Last time you were on was October, 2022. And things are bad at that point, not from a banking standpoint, just from a, ugh, you know, everybody was in a malaise. They were raising rates. It was going for on forever and nobody knew what was going on. And the change from a zero or ZERP interest rate, policy to anything other than that was just very depressing. And the, and the, and the, the, we talked about the change from zero to let's say 1% is not the same as 1% to 2% because the multiplier factor is much different. So we talked about the Fed experiment and how that we were, we were concerned, you and I both were concerned about the lack of plan at the time. So my question, fast forward, here we are today. What has changed? Well, what has changed is uh, is that Powell has stayed the course. And I think that that's probably what has surprised investors more than anything else. Uh, as 2022 uh, rolled on, the market continuously priced in a Fed pivot or a Fed pause. Call it what you will, but, you know, since October, all the all Jay Powell has done really is spearheaded very steady, increasing levels of tightening. Do you think that the markets just want to believe what's good for markets? That's how they digest information? Well, I certainly do. And markets, market participants have been trained this way. The idea of, of the Fed put is ingrained. It's, it's all that any, any anybody but the oldest investors are, are accustomed to you have to you have to talk to somebody who was investing throughout the entire decade of the 1980s really uh, and, and back even back into the 70s uh, to to find somebody who appreciates what is actually taking place and more so people that actually went to school and learned about economics 101 before let's say uh, the year 2000 which which by the way was 23 years ago so, oh god. <laughs> <laughs> so if you think about that for a second, all that was being taught over the years, even though there may have been some very elder, uh, when I say elder, you know, people in their 50s, oh my God, 60s, uh, teachers and, and people in uh, professors teaching economics, it was still like, oh, well, here we are, the new world where the Fed bails everybody out. And um, yep. I, guess, I guess this Fed, so you've been through a few Feds, right? You've been through a variety of them. And you've studied many of them. You're an insider, of course. We know that. So you have a unique vision and viewpoint on this. How do you grade this Fed? Um, you know, for me, at least, this Fed so far, uh, let, let me put it differently. Uh, since Jay Powell was uh, reconfirmed, I'm just going to draw that line in the sand. Mm -hmm. I, I would give this Fed 
a grade of a of a B. Mm. And what were they before? Before during the confirmation. The during the transitory phase. <laughs> okay. Yeah, a D. D. <laughs> so, uh, do you think that they caused the crisis? This banking crisis. Um, I think that. I think that the Fed is certainly partially, maybe even in large part, to blame for the mechanics of what's happening uh, with the banking crisis. I also think that there has been some risk taking, some speculation that's also gotten uh, individual actors in trouble as as well. It's because we these are, these are all the result, in my opinion, of participation trophies. <laughs> Seriously, think yeah. about it. Right or wrong? Well, th- there's there's something to be said for that. There is definitely something to be said for that. Um, there was an intractability, however, when it came to banks following the Fed into quantitative easing, in the sense that banks did buy the same securities that the Fed was buying when it was growing its balance sheet after the pandemic struck, based on the Fed's then commitment to not even think about thinking about raising interest rates, which was violently, uh, that narrative was violently thrown out the window, leaving a lot of of banks innocently, that's the right word, but leaving a lot of banks innocently um, offsides. We're going to bring in our guest today, Frank Curzio from Curzio Research and Wall Street Unplugged podcast to talk about all that's going on and the amount of things, as we call a flood of information, going to hit us over the next few weeks. Frank, what's up, buddy? What's going on? When you asked me to come on, I didn't know you meant on your boat during a live uh, podcast. Yes. Of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pedaling right now. I can't believe it. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And you know, there's that Nextdoor app. You know that Nextdoor app? Mm-hmm. People all night were like, can you please rescue? Not to me, just generally. We need rescue because somebody has a canoe. Wow. Can you just do that? I went, went around the neighborhood this um, the, the day after, and it was it was above your knees at some of the house, like like at their doorsteps. It's bad. That's incredible. It's so weird that because I'm, I'm four and a half hours away on the coastline, right. and we got rain here, and it was pretty hard. I mean, no flood. When you, you, know, you sent me pictures before – you got I'm like, what? I was like, are you kidding me? And I'm looking outside. I'm like, wow. Like, how, it's weird that only you got in a certain area where it's Fort Lauderdale and Hollywood and no one else on the coastline got it. Yeah, like it was that. that. I mean, they say right. it's worse in history, in the history of the area. I know people that my next door neighbor has lived in that house for like 35 years, 40 years. I've always been proud to say when people said, hey, how is your seawall? I've said, you know what? There's been a lot of storms. There's been a lot of these high tides, these king tides. And never has the water ever come over my seawall. I've said that a hundred times to people. And then yesterday, I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm like, Scary. what is going on? He said mm-hmm. he's never seen it that high, ever, ever. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, how crazy high the markets are, maybe, or what's going on. I want to start with a discussion, first of all, about the Fed. The Fed had a meeting this week. and Not a meeting. They had a, the, the minutes this week. And I wanted to just give you what they said, and I want to talk about this in depth because – you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm pretty fed up with the Fed, so to speak. I'm, I'm disgusted with some of the things they're doing. I think some of the things they're doing, they have to do, but I think it's they're doing. And some of the things that have happened, in particular, the discussion from Harkin this week that said that none of the banking failures had anything to do with anything that the Fed did. Different discussion. 
But let's talk about this. This is the key takeaway that I got from the minutes this week. It says, quote, for some time, the forecast for the U.S. economy prepared by the staff has featured subdued real GDP growth for this year and some softening in the labor market. Given their assessment of the potential economic effects of the recent bank sector developments, the staff's project projection, this is the important part, the staff's projection at the time of March meeting included a mild recession starting later this year with a recovery over the subsequent two years. And they go on to talk about real GDP in 2024. is going to remain below uh, where they thought. Resource utilization in both product and labor will forecast to be much less tight, blah, 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 blah. So here we are. We get two CPA, CPA or inflation prints this week. Both of them better than anticipated by a bit. PPI that came out on Thursday was negative 0.5, a lot better, but that's a noisy, that's a noisy uh, number, right? What, what, the Fed, what are they, what, what's going on with them in terms of now they're projecting a mild recession that, that that's going to take two years to recover from what kind of re mild recession takes two years to recover from? Am I just being too critical? I, I think they're telling the market what they want to hear. And, and, you know, you know, as well as you've been, we've been doing this for a long time, for decades, right? A lot yep. of people have been in this market. You could say you have 10 years of experience. It's a lot of experience, but in reality, the last 10 years, if you've been in this market, you've never been anything like this, right? You've been used to zero interest rates. Every single time there's a problem, you have the Fed there, you know, constant flooding of cash, buying bonds, QE this, QE that, two, three, four, whatever. Uh, you know, but when you date back and you see what's going on right now, it, it's it's insane, right? Mm -hmm. Because the Fed is usually ahead of the market since then where they, they said, okay, let's communicate this way. We don't disrupt the markets and we want to communicate what we're going to do. Right. That's what they do. And they have the Wall Street Journal that pass on things. The Wall Street Journal that write a story a couple of, uh, you know, like a week ahead of, of the rates and saying this is probably what they're going to do. You know, again, they, they leak it out a little bit and on purpose. Uh, this way, they don't disrupt the markets. I, I, I've never seen the Fed like the Fed is basically like we, we just based on data. You know, they're looking at the data, meaning that there's so much uncertainty around this organization right now, where if you just take the past 60 days, 60 days ago, remember, they were like high-fiving each other. It's disinflation, disinflation. How many times <laughs> I mentioned that wow. word, right? It was disinflation. Right. Everyone's right. like, oh, this is great. And then it was like a couple of weeks later, all of a sudden, all the data changed, and we saw it wasn't moderating. It was going back up, right? And we sort right. of go, started inching back up. And then he had to come out and he said, okay, well, you know, expect more hikes coming, much more hikes. Remember, the terminal rate was going you know, it was like 5%. Then it went to 4.5%, 4 3 Then all of a sudden, it was at 5.5%. Right. That terminal raise the highest rate that, you know, that the high rate where they're going to go, where they're going to stop mm -hmm. uh, raising rates. And, and now you're switching to the banking crisis. And now you're like now you're seeing, you know, that is nothing better than you know, for for you know just a deflationary event than, than a banking crisis. Right. So now they're coming back and saying, well, maybe we won't uh, raise after this. Right. And just the back and forth. This is 60 days. Right. And our guest is Howard Silverblatt, he's Senior Index Analyst, Port Product Management for the S&P Dow Jones Indices. In addition to general market research and commentary, he's responsible for the statistical analyst and analysis and commentary of S&P's DJI's Dow Jones Industrial Family of U.S. Indices, including the world's most followed stock market index, the S&P 500. Howard has been, this is, this is the thing that I want everybody to know, Howard has been with Standard & Poor's since 1977, which means he doesn't have commitment problems, right, Howard? No, but I think I'm still on probation. When people go and see 
fundamental data on, let's just pick on the S&P 500 for a second, on the S&P 500, and they're looking at, oh, what's the EPS, what's the PE ratio, what's the this, what's the that, all that. That's stuff that you are charged with the responsibility of making sure that's right, right? Yes, we, we as a company and I specifically deal with that. That's one of the issues we go on. Uh, the attempt is to know exactly where you've been. Then you deal with where you think you're going to go. But you need at least a history. You need a clear history of what it was, why it was, and broke it down. Not just on an index, but a sector and an issue by issue level. Uh, otherwise, going forward, you don't know what yesterday is. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and uh, you know, to be very honest with you, even though I see this all the time, you know, looking in that raw data is a little overwhelming. It's a lot of it. It, it, it is. There's a lot of numbers there, a lot of crunching, uh, economist, strategists, uh, you know, black boxes that are doing those. But again, knowing it, whether you're going from a fundamental basis, you know, and you're going to look on a high level or top down or on a technical basis where you're actually going by the numbers and the last thing you look at is the company's name right, <laughs> to right. see what, what, what you're dealing with. Either way, you need to start with where they've been and where you think they're going. Right. A roadmap, so, a roadmap. Uh, from, from, otherwise, yeah. otherwise, you don't know where you're getting to, right? That's the point there. Right. So um, I know you also, uh, you, you recently uh, came down to Florida, which uh, I didn't know till recently. And so uh, we're going we're gonna to pick up on that another time. But you also mentioned to me in a, in a note that you, you, you're, you, you became a member of an economic club and you did a speech, or, or and you did a speech. You meet monthly. What? Tell me, like, how those things go. Oh, uh, when I came down here, which I'm down here about uh, two years now, uh, mostly down here. I still go to New York a lot. Uh, I looked around and uh, I started to join some uh, local uh, clubs and local areas, and one of them was an economics club in, in Boca, uh, which I would say is about a third retirees. In there, so you've got some very good experienced people, about a third that's still working on there, and a third that are kind of in between mm -hmm. on there, you know, semi retired on there. So you get a lot of wealth and, and variations. It's different than New York, okay, where everything, uh, the economics club, everything is, is quantitative and coming down to the uh, eighth digit of a number. <laughs> uh, you're dealing a little bit more high higher viewpoint on there, again, with uh, a lot of people being able to pull in experience that when I was there, this is actually what we did. And, uh, you know, so it's a different kind of experience and it's good. And I think uh, with regards to this club, one of the good things I like about it is that you've got to support anything you say. You can't say I got it from the web. You have to specify where you got it, what your source, when oh, your source was. That's good. Uh, otherwise, someone's going to say, yell out, which you're not supposed to do, source it. So you cut out a lot of the, uh, shall we say, the politics and stuff when you start at least with the same facts. But there's a lot more fundamental analysis going today uh, that are using those numbers that were uh, crunched by the system literally in, in a couple of minutes compared to weeks that we used to take. Uh, and then thinking about where is it going. What is the consumer going to do? Where are they going to pull back? Where are they not going to pull back? How much is is revenge shopping or traveling impacting us? Uh, you know, what kind of lag effect we have for the uh, Fed? And each Fed cycle is different than the one before. All right, so let's get right down to it right now. Thomas Thornton, 
Um, hey, Tom, you know, you the last time you were on was September 22. We had an episode called The Two-Headed Llama. It was episode 780, so we're at 8, what, 16 now or so. So it's been a, it's been a quite a while and quite a, a interesting set of, I don't know, uh, turnarounds. Yeah, it has. Thanks for having me back. Um, it's always uh, good to catch up and chat. A lot going on in the markets today, and uh, this year has been uh, – rather unique as last year was rather unique. Now so you had, by the uh, way, you had a great year last year. I looked at your numbers, kept on tracking you. You kept on kind of pushing those shorts and working those, those areas. And, and of course you go, as they say, both ways. Uh, but uh, you know, yeah, you're, well, you're not you trying know, to go short or long. No, I, I look, I have a background of working at a long, short hedge fund. Uh, we were $5 billion. We, I mean, I think with leverage, we were, you know, $10 billion that we would whip around. Um, but we were known for being uh, pretty good short sellers. And, you know, oddly enough, last year, as much as um, I, I had a good year, um, I, I actually traded more times on the long side than I did the short side. Hmm. It's just my sizing on the long side was smaller um, per position than on the short side, I made more money on the short side, but uh, it, it actually is rather balanced on, on what I made. So this year is actually, it hasn't been necessarily a spectacular year for me. Um, the S and P's up, you know, just under 6%. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm up a little over 2%, which um, is disappointing. Uh, I will say I have a core long uh, paramount that, uh, and is uh, falling pretty hard. Uh, so it's it it's taken a percent off my uh, PL. Yep. Other than that, I'm net short currently. And I'm actually very comfortable being net short. It's just this one long is sort of uh if you hear it in my voice, I'm just furious <laughs> today. Yep. <laughs> not, I think I'm very happy. So yeah, I know. I mean, Paramount was rough last week. That was there's no question about that. But you know what? That okay. You know things happen, and we get uh, different issues. I want to ask you though, mentality, psychology. The difference that you see maybe from what a hedge fund mentality is in terms of trading, buying, selling, shorting, to what maybe you see as a or you could see as a uh, a retail trader. Like what 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 are the main differences between the two? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that it's, um, I'm just accustomed to, um, you know, I, I manage risk on, with both sides and I, I'm actually very calm when there's something going against me or, you know, let's say the market goes up and I'm, I'm short. I know that my, my shorts aren't going to work. And if I'm short and, uh, or if I'm long and, my, you know, market goes against me. I mean, it, it I know that there's it, actually, let me just put it this way. It's sort of like gardening ah. in the sense that you, you have to pick certain fruits and veggies at certain times and you can't necessarily get everything working correctly on every sing, single day. Uh, those people that uh, are two-sided in their books that make money every day uh, know when to you know, pick the right fruit and uh, when they, they turn ripe. Uh, so it, it's, um, it's sort of, uh, well, I, I don't know if I ever mentioned this to you, but we used to talk about it like sausage making. Uh, you, you don't really want to see 
how it's made. Mm. And it's similar to working <laughs> at a hedge fund. You don't necessarily want to see how it's made because it can be a, a little bit ugly at times. And you have winners and losers and you have to, you know, monetize the winners uh, when you have them and, and manage risk. Um, and and that that's entirely it. Uh, so people love the, you know, the performance of a hedge fund, but uh, I'll just advise uh, it's sometimes a little uglier. Yeah, the way no, I think that's really important. And I think it's that is a really great point you made uh, about position sizing, because that is one of the biggest things that can get you in trouble, right? Because you're on the right side of the trade for a while, you pile into it, and all of a sudden things turn, whether it's an earnings announcement, whether it's a, a market event, whether it's you know, a, 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 an issue with the company itself, whether, you know, the CEO is leaving, I, who knows what's going on, right? Um, and that, or, or, or even compet competition, you know, just it, 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 it's seeing, um, you know, that, that it's competition did something and, it, and it's having sympathy pains. Um, That's true. Uh, what, sizing, sizing, position right? sizing yeah. is really important. And, you know, I, I, can, I can say that uh, there, there are a lot of people that, that differ in that view uh, especially in the hedge fund world, will there'll be a lot of people that will get piggish and, you know, put 25% of their position, you know, their portfolio in one particular name or a sector. Wow. And I tend to keep my position sizing at maximum 5% uh, for at in inception. Mm -hmm. And if I'm, if I have a position that's 2%, uh, I, I will, um, I reserve the right to be able to add up to 5% at any certain time. Right. I do that mostly because I, it keeps my anxiety levels lower. So if I'm wrong in something, it's not necessarily going to be the end of the world. Um, if I have to take a loss, uh, if I take a 10%, you know, if it's down 10% and I take a loss, it's not necessarily going to be uh, that bad of a deal for a two or, or 5% size position. So there you have it. The best of guests ending with Thomas Thornton there, uh, which we're going to have on again. We have uh, a tremendous, tremendous list of guests that uh, we're, we're booked out for months, actually, which is pretty uh, unusual. Usually we are uh, booked for three weeks in advance, something like that, and try to make sure we have everything that's very timely. But this year we have so many great guests that uh, want to be on the show or guess the show is just getting that much more popular. And it's thanks to you, for telling everybody that you know about the Disciplined Investor Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, it's about you providing us with great feedback through your various commentary ratings and uh, words on things like iTunes. And I don't think we have a lot on Spotify. I looked there. There's only a few on Spotify. Uh, Amazon um, Podcasts and all the rest that are out there. Thank you once again for being there throughout this year and every year over the last 15 years or so. I, I appreciate you, and you know that. So thanks for joining me. We'll be back next week with another great guest, live, uh, well, a real guest, not a look-back guest. <laughs> and that should be a lot of fun. Happy, happy, happy New Year. We're going to have a very prosperous one coming next year as we go through the process of enhancing and becoming and working on our disciplined investment process. I'll see you soon. Thanks. Nothing discussed in this podcast should be considered a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Past performance is no indication of future results. In addition, the information presented is not intended to be used as a sole basis of any investment decisions, nor should be construed as advice designed to meet the individual needs of any particular investor. Nothing herein constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice, or individually tailored investment advice. 
Remember, investing involves substantial risk. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results and a loss of original capital may occur. No one receiving or accessing this information should make any investment decision without first consulting his or her own personal financial advisor and conducting his or her own research and due diligence, including carefully reviewing any applicable prospectuses, press releases, reports, and other public filings of the issuer of any securities being considered. Please consider this for educational purposes only. As always, use your best judgment when investing. Horowitz & Company, Inc. is registered as an investment advisor with the state of Florida and conducts business in other states where it is properly registered or is excluded from registration requirements. Registration does not imply any level of skill or training.